Hey everybody. So today I want to talk about a topic that came up because my friend had gone to this uh, Bible study group and another friend of ours had brought up a question that kind of, it didn't quite land as I understand it. He, it, it was kind of dismissed and shrugged off as nothing. It more or less ignored because it was probably perceived as being overly simplistic. Um, I think that it's worth exploring. So the question was, they were talking about love. And everybody's kind of talking about what love means to them. And he asked, would it be incorrect to think that love is the opposite of hate? Okay, so seems easy, seems obvious. Yeah, sure. Love is the opposite of hate. Hate is the opposite of love. Okay, what, what, what do we mean by opposite? Right? Do we mean... We have two different things that are constantly destined to butt heads. Well, hang on now. We gotta be really, really careful with this, right? Because in 1 John, we learn that God is love. You know, he that knoweth not love knoweth not God, for God is love. So if you wanna say this important concept too, if you wanna say you know God, you better know love. Which means you better be obeying the royal law. And the royal law is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's not the only nature of God, right? In First John we also find out that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Okay. So, God is love. So if we're going to say that hate is some other thing than love, then we're falling into the trap of dualism. Alright, this is, a, this is a, a Taoist idea. Yin and Yang. Right? Darkness and light in constant balance. This is not the Christian doctrine. The Christian doctrine is that God is all things. God is in all things. God has created all things. All things come from God. Okay, so the idea that there is some other thing in opposition to God is to challenge God, is to bring God down. So we need to understand what hate is. Well, I think a useful idea comes from the other nature of God, but given by John, that God is light. Because what is light? Well, better yet, what is darkness? Darkness is not its own thing. Darkness is just the absence of light. Okay? So, it's of the same nature it is just of a different degree. Now, I want to give credit where credit is due, and I'm not saying go out and become a hermeticist, but this is an idea that I first learned of in hermetic philosophy, this idea that all opposites are of the same nature but of varying degree. The analogy they use is heat and cold. Cold is not its own thing. Cold is just the absence of heat, right? Darkness is not its own thing. Darkness is just the absence of light. So... It follows, I think, that hatred is not a thing. Hatred is the absence of love. This is important. This is important, and here's why. It's important to understand that the enemy, Satan, has nothing to offer you, quite literally. He can offer you no things. God has created all things. Okay? 
Satan can offer you nothing, no things. He has nothing to offer. He has no ability to create. All he can do is distort. All things that appears that he's created or were created through his power are just distortions of things. Turning things from their, from their perfect intent to something lower. This is the idea of the fallen man. We're created to be images of God. And so what have we done through sin? We've distorted ourselves into some warped style of image. So I think this is a useful way to understand things because the implications, they're not small. There's very large implications here. The implication that, that love is not the opposite of hate. It is hate is just a lesser degree of love. There is an absolute zero, just like there is with temperature. There's an absolute zero, which is pure hatred would just be no love at all. I'm not sure that we can conceptualize this. You see, it's, it's very possible that even Satan himself, being a fallen angel, hasn't hit absolute zero. Who knows, right? But the point is that he doesn't have separate things, okay? So, this is corroborated by this idea that I've seen attacked. I've seen attacked by a fundamentalist Christian groups, which is that the word sin is an archery term, meaning to miss the mark. Okay? So, they, 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 they don't like this. They think it takes sin too lightly. That sin is a willful defiance of God. All right, well, willful versus non-willful is a topic for another time. Not all sin is willful sin. There's a delineation made throughout the Bible between willful and non-willful sin, right? In the letter to the Hebrews, Paul makes a, a delineation. He says that, uh, he says, for if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Now this is, this is worth touching on. He talks about how, and people quote this wrong all the time. It's very odd. They say, Hey guys, there is no atonement without blood. There is no sacrifice without... All, all, all things were atoned for by sacrifice. This is not true. This is not the case. Paul makes the distinction. He says, almost all. Listen to any rabbi talk about this. Not all sins were covered by sacrifice. Unintentional sins were covered by sacrifice. But as we find out in the book of Deuteronomy... and So people refer to Leviticus. They'll say, look at all these. Look at all these sins covered by sacrifice. And these ones seem like they're intentional because they don't, they don't specify that they're unintentional. Rabbi will tell, rabbis will tell you that these are only for unintentional, but also the book of Deuteronomy will tell you. If you sin willfully, if you sin intentionally, God considers it high-handed and there is no sacrifice for you. You're to be cast out of the nation. All right? So Paul, he says in Hebrews, almost... All things were atoned for with uh, sacrifice. So you need blood. Without blood, there's nothing. No forgiveness. But then he goes on. Nobody ever gets to... They go read Hebrews 9, then they skip over Hebrews 10, evidently. Where he says, if we sin willfully, we have the spirit in us. Now, we're not bound by the letter of the law. Now we're bound by the spiritual law. We're bound by the higher law, which is given to us through Christ. Okay? This royal law, this love your neighbor as yourself, this is what we're bound This is the meaning behind the law. This is what Christ did. He came to the people and he said, guys, I've got your, you've got your written law. 
you've heard this, I tell you that's this. He brings it to his highest level. He brings it to its fullness. Because the highest law is the ultimate truth. It's the ultimate law. Now, if we say we've got that truth in us, we have the law written in our hearts, as Jeremiah would say, and then we willfully sin, well, Paul tells us there's no more sacrifice for sins. A certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He, Paul notices the difference, but people seem to miss it. So, if you're going to go ahead and say you've got the Spirit in you, you've been filled with God, you've accepted Christ, He's your Savior, you've been cleansed and atoned for, you don't get to then tell people, and my sins are covered, so nudge, nudge, wink, wink, I'm going to go do the things I want. I'm going to go ahead and keep on sinning. No, for Pete's sake, there's one of two things that's happening here. Both of which are damn ya. The first of which is, you have the Spirit in you, and then you're defying it intentionally, for which there is no more sacrifice. Now, if you're going to... By the way, guys, this isn't just Paul who makes this delineation. You could say, well, Paul's talking about apostasy. That's what a lot of theologians say. Paul's talking about apostasy. He doesn't specify apostasy. He, he, there's contextual evidence that it's apostasy. But he, the, he's referring back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy's not specifying apostasy. It's defining a high-handedness as willful and intentional sin and it's associating high-handedness with being cast out of the nation so it's you revoking your citizenship which so what i'm thinking what i'm concerned with is this idea maybe paul considers a willful sin after you have the spirit and act of apostasy but and here's here's how you can think about it if if sin is let's say missing the mark because there's only one mark. There's not two things, right? There's good and then there's I'm doing less good than the ultimate good. And all things we do are less good than the ultimate good. If I... I'm, I'm, I'm probably never hitting that ultimate good. That perfect um, attainment of the royal law. We all fall short, right? We, says, we, we know that. We've all heard everybody freaking say that so, to excuse their own sin. Well, we all fall short. The Bible tells us. Okay, fine, fine, guys, fine. We all fall short. But imagine this. Imagine you're in a dark forest, right? And you couldn't find your way. This is a way of thinking about the Old Testament. You couldn't find your way. You're in a dark forest. And there's someone giving you this invisible guy, giving you commands, walk straight, left foot, right foot, go, go, go. You wander off. You wander off in the dark forest. You get lost. You're screaming. He's giving you directions. You can hear it. You've got the law. You've got the written law. But you're not quite sure which way is up. You're making excuses. You're saying, I just can't. If I could see something, you know, I, I maybe I could follow the instructions. Okay. Well, then he sends a light down. And he says, follow this light. Go ahead. The light is Christ. Now, this is the New Testament. All you have to do is follow it. If you believe that that light was sent by me, right? This is the act of faith. You just need to believe that that light was sent by me and that it's going to lead you in the right direction. You can't see past it. You can't. It's leading you to, to the kingdom of heaven. You're not seeing the kingdom of heaven. You're not seeing past the light, but you can believe that he's leading you there. That's your act of faith. 
Now, of course, right? There's going to be times he's going the straight and narrow path is a narrow path. You're stumbling off, right? It's dark. All you can see is this light in front of you. You stumble, you trip off the path, you fall, you take a side turn, you see, you see a reflection of the light somewhere in the dark trees, and you just go, oh, is that, is that the light? He comes back and says, no, dingus, I'm right here. That's unintentional sin, okay? That's you still following this path. It's still you still walking towards the greater good, walking towards the truth. That's you walking in the path of Christ, stumbling along the way, absolutely, walking in it, though. By comparison, what is intentional sin? Intentional sin is you looking at that light and turning the opposite direction. It's you staring right at the light in front of you and saying, you know what? I'm going to hang a right. Well, guys, he's leading you there. That's, that's, sin is missing the mark. So your forgiveness of sins is not because God is just plain angry. It's because sin itself is what is condemning you. Sin, by its very nature, is not the path to goodness. He's giving you the path. You just have to follow. You can stumble. He'll get you there, though. But if you turn off the path, that's you. That, to me, seems like an act of apostasy. Right? So, you're everything we do to come back to it, everything we do is walking on this path of love, in this force, this narrow path. The path of following God's nature. And we're doing it less than the best all the time. That's We're always falling short. That doesn't excuse us. That doesn't give us the the privilege, Christian privilege, is not extended. Christian freedom, is a better way to say it. Christian privilege is a phrase that's been adopted as a derogatory saying against Christians. Christian freedom is not extended towards you turning off the path and saying, forget it, I don't even want to do this for right now. I don't know where people got this idea. It's very odd. It's very odd. So many cautions against falling into temptation against disobeying the commandments, right? If you, I mean, Peter, Peter, the great apostle himself, falls into, into temptation. He knew Christ in the flesh. He denies Christ three times. And on top of that, he pulls his sword out, forgetting all the teachings, and chops off the guy's ear. So you can say, well, guys, the spirit wasn't around at the time. Christ hadn't given them the helper. Okay. What about the book of Acts? Remember what happens when you're a part of the church, and the church, all the people have received the helper at that point. There's all, they've been at the Pentecost, and then, with no indication whatsoever that this couple had not been considered proper Christians, well, they lie. They lie to the church. They lie about the amount that they sold their land for, the amount of money they made, so they could keep a little bit of money. Peter says, you've just lied, not to me, but to the Holy Spirit. And then he strikes him dead on the spot. All right. Now, Peter says, you just lied to the church. 
you're lying to the Spirit if you lie to the church. Christ tells us that there is no forgiveness when the Pharisees accuse him of um, casting out demons by Beelzebub. He says, there is no forgiveness for blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you, so you say, you'll say, hey, well, that's impossible. All right, we all fall short of the glory of God. And it's just impossible. Nobody could uphold these standards. Christ sets too high of a standard, and frankly, nobody could obey the law. The law was just impossible to uphold. You couldn't be righteous under it, except for, you know, Zechariah and Abiah, who were John the Baptist's parents. They were called righteous. Oh, don't, and don't forget everybody in the Old Testament who was declared as righteous. Okay, well, that's a different kind of righteous. That's righteous in a way I haven't really thought about righteousness, but certainly... The law is pretty much impossible to uphold, and Christ's law is even harder to uphold, and so he died so we wouldn't have to obey anything. Well, he died and freed you from the written law to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah, which is to write the law in your hearts so that people wouldn't have to ask each other what's right and what's wrong. They would just know because the law is in their hearts, guys. If you want to say you know Christ, you want to say you know God, you have to say you know Christ. If you want to know Christ, then you have to have the law written in your hearts, and the law is... Love the, your neighbor as yourself and love God. And Christ says that all 613 commandments are hinged on these two things. So if you fulfill these two things, you're fulfilling the higher law. Okay, well, this is not justification by works. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting to you that your faith is... Is, is you obeying the spiritual law. Right, so your physical acts, okay. If you can go and commit any physical act, Paul uses the analogy of what you eat. You know, pork's not kosher. You can have pork. Go ahead and have pork. Do it to glorify God. Now this is extremely liberating and extremely limiting. Because this is saying, guys, any physical act, you can do it if you do it in glorification of God. But... But something as innocent as giving a flower to your mother, if there's bad intent behind it, you're not doing it to glorify God, and it's not out of true intent of loving God and loving your neighbor, in your heart of hearts, you've just committed a sin. Now, if you knew it was a sin, if you intentionally did it as a sin, then it's a willful sin, for which there is no forgiveness. But if you're, you know, John tells us that if you have Christ and you're doing these things unintentionally, He's interceding on your behalf. So, okay. So, coming back, I think we just need to stop and pause with simple questions like this and say, okay, well, is love the opposite of hate? Well, yeah, kind of. But you have to have a different idea of what opposites are. And then explore the implications there. I mean, that's big stuff, guys. If, if love is the opposite of hate, that affects what we think of as sin. That affects, and by sin, you can understand your nature as a human, because your nature is as a fallen human, which means that we were meant to be something better, right? We know that. We're meant to be images of God, and we failed to do so. We failed to uphold that responsibility. We're told to go forth and multiply and add dominion over the earth in the image of God, okay? Failed. We've failed to uphold our end of the bargain. Okay, now, now let's think about that for a second. We're an image of God. God is love. God is light. 
we're meant to be creatures in Eden. We are fully in connection with God. You know what that means? It means the law was written in our hearts. We knew what was right and what was wrong. Adam and Eve are representative of the entire human struggle. They knew what was right and wrong. They were in the presence of God and they said, fooey on it. Let's do our own thing. And she judged the fruit as good in her eyes. And she defied him. And she defined what was good for herself. Well, God already told us what was good. We know what's good. And if you have God in you, you too will know what's good. You can go into situations and say, well, here's my here's here's my meter. Here's how I can test this situation. What's the right thing to do? What is the most loving thing you can do for whoever's involved, absent of yourself? What's at risk of your your well-being? What can you do for everybody else involved in the situation? Whatever is the most good for them, regardless of what's good for you. That's probably the best solution. That seems to me to be a fairly simple idea and very applicable in situations where, you know, some, every situation is going to have various complications where it's hard to predict what's going to help people the most. But if your intent is there, okay, well then, if it doesn't work out, well, you, you, your heart was in the right place. And certainly your heart was in a better place than if you had done it for selfish reasons. So when you say, okay, well, i got to weigh these situations. i got to do what's the most right. That's both, like I said, both liberating and constricting. Because we don't have to obey the letter. We don't have a ritual process. Now, I think this is a place where, as a general rule, I don't, bash the Catholic faith anymore. I don't have any issue with it anymore uh, in general. But I think this is a place where they, they're, they're, they're not quite ideal, which is that they have a prescribed solution, right? You go to confession. Okay, we'll do, do you know, a couple of rosaries and say this many Hail Marys, whatever. Do this, get that. Do this, get forgiveness. That doesn't seem to be the message of Christ. That seems... To be more or less the misinterpreted message. Because don't forget, Paul doesn't hate the written law. The law was good. It's people's reaction to the law was bad. The misinterpretation of the law was, hey guys, do this, get that. You know, hey, screw up, commit a sacrifice, you're good. No, no, no. no. And we find that this is not even what the Old Testament wants us to believe. Isaiah 29.13 will tell you that the law was far from their hearts. It doesn't lie, did it? You need to have the law in your heart. That's the most important thing. So, you, the idea of turning God into some kind of a vending machine where you put something in, you get something out, is no good, okay? In any sense of the word. You need to... That's why Jacob got the name Israel, to wrestle with God. He who wrestles with God. You got to wrestle with this stuff you got to contend with doing the right thing even when it's not simple, easy, or good for you. And that is to wrestle with God. And guess what, guys? If you're not doing that, if you're not aiming, not that, not hitting, I don't, you don't need to hit necessarily, but if you're not aiming for 
the highest good, the greatest love, the most truth, and the most light in every situation, then you're not glorifying God in every situation. And Paul would tell you, guys, you got to do it. You got to glorify God in every situation. John would tell you, hey, if you know it's not love, then you know it's not God. So don't come to tell me that you're a follower of Christ. James would tell you if you're not obeying Christ's commandments, then you're not a follower of Christ. That's how you're going to... That's how you're going to know his followers, because they obey his commandments. So you need to at least aim that direction in every action you take. And the second you're turning away, you're not indulging in some opposite and new thing. You are in getting, you're aiming away from the only thing there is, which is there's one path. You're either aiming in the right direction, or you're aiming in the wrong direction. Do you want to be turned 180 degrees and aiming the opposite way on purpose? Not a good idea. So, if you have any ideas, thoughts, concerns, questions, just email me at mike at royallaw.org. Mike at royallaw.org. And if you're interested, some of the ideas I talked about here are in my very short, very easy book, um, it's called Warped Images. It's on Amazon. I'm not saying I'm a good writer or it's great, but, you know, it's it's there, and some of the ideas are there. So, anyway, I hope you guys have a good day. Uh, I, I hope God is with you, and I hope that something in this was useful for you. So just let me know. Give me some feedback. I want to I wanna understand if I, I think I'm heading the right direction, but, you know, give me counter-arguments. Argue against me. I'm open for it.